Well, let me pray for us again. And all I will be doing is agreeing with what my two brothers have already prayed. Father, what a great opportunity you've given us uh, to join together as a family, to learn together, to really be part of what will be a, a major help in each one of us being energized to be ready for the ministries that each one of us have that are independent and unique. So in that, Father, we, uh, we ask that you would lead us today, that uh, we see blessing in this time, but we don't want to take it for granted. So may your Holy Spirit lead us, lead us mentally to think and to consider, lead us emotionally to feel um, however you would want us and, and make us uh, open and ready to be directed by your Holy Spirit, because that's what we that's where we want our hearts to be at this moment in time. Father, I also thank you for handpicking all the people that would be here today. You already knew that the people that were would be on the road or just couldn't be here today, you already knew who that would be, and you already handpicked the people who would make sure that their schedules intersected with being here. In both cases, Father, we, we ask that you would strengthen and watch over and bless our, our family members who aren't here. And do the same, Father, with those who are here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first things first, uh, I, I, I try to always remember this, but, it, but it's true. I just want to thank you as a church for giving me the opportunity to take the pulpit. May, may none of us who have the privilege of being up here ever take it for granted that we have the opportunity to be able to open God's Word and share what we believe God's taught us with such a group of people that are so easy to love and, and have earned so much respect. So I just I want to thank you for that. And I know that I speak for the, the Jakes of the world, the Jasons of the world, the Steve Nutters of the world, whenever they find themselves up here. It's a privilege to be here to be able to share this truth with you. I just wanted to thank you again. Two things about today. And I've already shared this with a couple of friends of mine, so um, full disclosure. Whenever I have the opportunity to be up here, I am most comfortable uh, doing what we call expository teaching, which is you, you take a passage, you kind of treat that passage with the boundaries that the writer of that scripture gave it, and, and you do the best you can to kind of plumb the depths of that passage. You close the gate behind you, then you move on, right? Not this morning. And so I just want to tell you that today is kind of tailor-made for a topical sermon. So today's going to be topical. We'll be kind of all over the place, but I think there's a reason for that. And and hopefully that will become manifestly evident here shortly. So maybe that's my... That's my proviso up front. If I, if I am all over the place today, you know there's a reason for it. Uh, the other thing is that uh, I'm going to invite some audience participation. So um, I, I mean in no way to disrespect the way that church is usually done, but I'm going to ask some questions, and I'm going to be waiting for some responses. So we haven't gone crazy at CBC, but that's going to be part of what we're going to do this morning. I really am interested in what you think about a couple of things. Not just about a couple of things, but about these things, right? We good with that? Okay, very good. Nice. So our last meeting of 2019. So I think it's a great opportunity for us to be together. Very last meeting that we'll have this year. So what what is something that typically happens this time of year? Right after Christmas, right before New Year's, what what usually happens? What do we like to do? And we meaning both in this church and outside of this church. What's common? Resolution. New Year's resolutions, right? So why is it that we do that right now? Why don't we do that in the middle of the year? There's no wrong answer here, but why is that? New Year, new me. New. That's right. New Year, new Jonathan. We're all about a new Jonathan, right? No, it's natural, right? It's natural. And it's not just natural. It's the end of the old year, beginning of the new year. But also, um, we, we like to catalog the negative. It's part of the human condition. So this is a really natural time of the year for us to look back on the last year going, okay, I don't want to do that again. Or something I should have been doing that I want to make sure that I'm doing this year. So it, it makes all the sense of the world. It, it might, 
Well, let me let me ask you, first of all, what have, what have some of yours been? I've got a couple. I'm not the biggest fan of New Year's resolutions, but I have done them. So what have, some, what have been some of yours? I, and I don't want to have to call on anybody, but I will. <laughs> Going to Romania. Going to Romania, right? I take it that that was a New Year's resolution that was actually fulfilled, right? What's another New Year's resolution that you may have made for yourself? Not have to buy new clothes because I got bigger. All right, so you want to lose weight. A little self-improvement. Football. Football. You like football, so you want to be able to enjoy more of it. I'm quite sure that a bunch of guys in this room have done just that. Okay. Oh, there you go. I see that hand. Okay. So a lot of this has to do with self-improvement, right? Uh, Some of mine have been, I want to spend more time in God's Word this year. They, They don't have to be bad, and they don't have to be shallow. Right? They can be really, really good and hefty and worthwhile goals that we have for ourselves. So spending time, more time in God's Word, losing weight, getting healthy, right? The, the, I'm, I'm quite certain about this one. Every wife in this room has a whole litany of New Year's resolutions for her husband. <laughs> and husbands for wives, right? Okay, so long list that we have those. Um, it, it might, it might uh, intrigue you to know that we didn't make up New Year's resolutions. They're a very ancient thing. In fact, we can actually trace New Year's resolutions to before the time of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Right? I think this is pretty fascinating. So back then, resolutions and uh, New Year's was, was generally tied to the beginning of the planting season. So New Year's generally found itself kind of in the springtime. And again, for these ancient people, these in traditional cultures, everything was about getting, getting everything planted on time, getting proper rainfall, having a healthy harvest, because it was much more than just impacting your livelihood. It was life or death. You get crops that grow, you survive. You have abundance. You don't get crops that grow, you begin traveling to other countries where you can get fed. So it's a really common sense kind of thing. So what the Babylonians did, and I, I think this is a riot actually, what the Babylonians did at the be- right, just prior to the beginning of their new year, what they would do is they would return all of the objects that they had stolen from each other and borrowed from each other, right, in order to kind of clean themselves up right before the new year. And what they were trying to do is kind of engender a little bit of good, goodwill with the local deity. So I'm going to kind of clean up, get this stuff, I'm going to return everything, and hopefully then God will bless our planting, our, our season, and it'll end with a bountiful harvest. So what the, what the Romans did, most of us who have studied ancient history to any degree, you realize that the, Noma, the, the Romans are very famous for not really contributing much of anything that's unique. They appropriate all the good ideas from all of these people groups that they, that they conquer. So actually the Romans come up with a god by the name of Janus. Now some of you, now I have a sister-in-law named Janus. This is not Janus, right? Janus. Janus is known as the two-faced god. And, and what the Romans did is they appropriated this deity that looked back into the past, looked forward into the future. And so if you were a good Roman and you were an observer of the, the ancient god Janus, what you did is you, you kind of heightened your, uh, your sacrifices to this god. Again, it was a way of kind of cleaning up your act before the new year starts. So you were viewed to be a, a good follower of Janus, if you were increasing your sacrifices right before the new year, if you did things on the outside. So legalism is not just something that's unique to Christianity. There's been legalism back from the very beginning that you kind of clean up things on the outside in order to show that you're a different person on the inside. Make sense? So it's really not until a little bit later that we start to see this whole idea, like with industrialized and Western culture, we see this idea of uh, making choices based on self-improvement. Any ideas in terms of, and again, this is a moving target. It's not a poll, it's a survey. And these surveys are done each year, and the, the Gallup organization actually has the survey that's renewed every year. Anyone hazard a guess? as to how successful New Year's resolutions are. And when I say successful, I mean any decision that you make that, that lives beyond the first 30 days. Because they, they say anywhere from 30 to 45 days, you do something that often, it'll become a habit. So any ideas? 1%. 1%. It's a bit low. But see, I already kind of gave you the idea that it might not be great. But okay, 1%. Any other guesses? 15%. 15%. 
It's a bit on the high, high side. One last guess. Twelve percent. Okay, twelve percent. So actually, the average is anywhere from well, for 2018, it was 9.2 percent. Average really goes anywhere from eight to ten percent, right? Pretty low. When you get right down to it, less than one in ten of these decisions that we make actually make it out of the first 30 days. And these are some really good, really great decisions that we can we can make the choice to do in and over our own uh, our own lives. Any ideas as to why we're, we so, I was going to say we're such failures. The better way to say it is why do we so severely undershoot our goals? <laughs> why do we only get to less than 10%? Why is that? Think about that. Why is it that these decisions just don't have any staying power? Lack of belief. I love that, Ivor, because I have signed up for New Year's resolutions that I didn't really believe. But I did it because I thought that's what was expected. Okay? We're creatures of habit. So what do you mean by that? Okay. There you go. So we make a decision, and that's, that's really a very powerful concept in terms of spiritual growth. I don't know if you meant to kind of lead into this, but the reality is, is if we make a decision to start doing something, if we, don't if we don't replace that bad behavior, right, it just comes back again if we're not aware of the fact that that's going to take place. So, yeah, we fall back into bad habits. We get distracted. We get distracted, okay? We make these decisions. Kind of, There's a truism that I try to live by. I'm not always successful, but you try to make decisions not at your highest, not at your lowest, right? You don't want to be too affected by your emotions one way or the other. And then when you're exercising good clean, wholesome, common sense, you're apt to make decisions that you won't be so easily distracted by, right? You're kind of centered. There you go. Yep. So we've just decided that I'm going to set a course forward, and uh, the world behind me, the cross before me. And those are great words, but the reality is we've, We've got to have other, we've got to have the Holy Spirit and other people to be part of kind of fueling that effort rather than just by ourselves. That's good. Okay. Well, what, what I thought we would do today, and this is really good and we could go on with this. What, what I thought we would do today is kind of pull the curtains back in terms of looking at kind of the, 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 the general notion of how do we follow the Lord? How do we make decisions? How do we decide how do we make these decisions to where we follow through and they, there's actually some staying power to them? So right now it's kind of the season of making decisions. Let's, let's talk about some ideas. We won't get to the end of these, right? Today is really intended to prompt us to think through how we make these decisions during a time when we're known for making a lot of decisions that don't really stick. So that's why I thought that this would probably be the right time for us to talk about what do, what do we think God wants us to do, right, as individuals, as people? What direction does he think, do we think he's leading us? Who does he want us to be? Right? So um, any of us who have a high schooler or even a junior higher in our, in our house, this is a really this this is a question that vibrates in our home all the time. How how are we going to know what God wants us to do? How how are we going to know who he wants us to be? And that's not a one time only question, is it? It's a question that kind of gets reinforced often, almost every day as good parents we're trying to shepherd our kids to be able to maybe do better than we did in that area. Right? It's part of our responsibility. So what, I, what I'd like us to first do, let's go ahead and open up what, what Will just read for us. Just a magnificent verse, a set of verses. We're going to look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And you guys already know these. In fact, many of us have already committed these to memory. It's really the two verses that grab our attention most often because these are the verses that really provide us what we know about kind of the kernel of truth about the salvation experience. But we're going to go on, on to verse 10 because that has a lot of meaning for us today. So let me read that for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So unlike the Babylonians and the Romans, you can't get yourself cleaned up for God. Because if you could, the first thing we would do is we'd take credit for it. We'd brag about it, right? That's not, it is a free gift. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And then in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So you, you hear me say this on occasion, and this is true. Verse 10 is one of those verses where, yet again, we just let it roll off the tongue like we know what it's talking about. Just think about this. This is, this, is, this is profound. So when Jason prayed earlier, let's have hearts that are just like tilled, fertile soil so that God's word can kind of land in there and grow. This is an area where it can grow. God's word says that even, even while um, our creator was knitting us together in our mother's womb, we had personhood. We were already known as individuals by the one who created us. I, I think that's profound. But Paul is taking it a step further. He said, not only were you created, but God has invested in each one of us a very specific path that he wants each one of us to take. Right? Everyone in this room has a unique capability of being a three-dimensional picture of God's faithfulness in a way that the world's never seen and never will again. That, that really is what we mean by unique. And what I find unfathomable, I can say it, but really understanding it fully is a different deal. The fact that while, while God is creating this really unique person of John Valerius, while he's still in his mother's womb, he's also investing in him a lifetime of activity in his service that he already has planned out for you. I just think that that's too profound for words. And the same thing is true about every single one of us. So what I wanted to do is kind of use that as as kind of our starting point. We all have this very unique calling. We'll come back to the word calling in just a little bit. Everyone in this room that's trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior has a unique pathway to take that the world's never seen, world never will again. And that's really important for us to understand. So before we, we get into that, let's, let's talk about the whole notion of God's will. So just let me be seminary just for a minute, because I want to give us some definitions that maybe will help us to not get confused about this whole notion of God's will. Because much of how God has manifested his will, what he wants with mankind, is stuff that we don't have anything directly to do with. And it's important for us to know that. So the first thing is God's sovereign will. This is his decree that he has outside of all history and time. It's his moment-by-moment sustaining of all the things that he's created. So, point of fact, Ivor doesn't have to wake up in the morning and say, God, I really hope that the earth is still going to continue to be on a a two-degree axis. And it's still going to take 365 days for us to do a complete solar year. God set that in place. We can't change it. And that's going to last as long as he says it's going to last. Right? So that's his will. But we didn't, we didn't do one thing, one or the other on that. That was all part of his decree. There's also his intervening will. These are the times when God determines, I am going to set my foot right smack dab in the middle of human history. We can't stop it. We just celebrated it on Wednesday. God understood from eternity past that we needed a Savior, a perfect sacrifice for sins, that Jesus Christ would become a man, fully God, fully man, be born as a child and would end up living a perfect life, and he would be unfairly accused, he would be killed, he would be dead for three days, and he would rise again. And he would reside at the right hand of God. God decided that. We didn't. No matter of hope on our part would have changed that plan. That's his intervening will. And the third one that we really don't have anything to do with, but it happens, is God's permissive will. This is where God allows things 
both with human beings and with angelic beings, to take place, he permits it both for good and for evil, right? So probably the best example of this would have been the time when Lucifer, right, as a created being, was able to lead a rebellion against God himself and take a third of the angels with him, right? So God wasn't surprised with that. I I don't pretend to know all there is to know about that, but his word says he wasn't surprised with that. It's not like his hand slipped off the wheel and he went, oh my, oh, what are we going to do now? There, There wasn't one scintilla, not one iota of that thinking. God understood that. So it's his permissive will that he allows things to happen under the umbrella of his sovereignty. He's not lost control at all. Okay? And then the last aspect of God's will, kind of how it impacts mankind, is what we would call his directive will. His directive will. And that's really, that's the world that we live in as believers. That's where we are. To believers, that's, that's balancing the objective commands from Scripture and the subjective leading of the Holy Spirit, right? In, in the whole process of living the Christian life and making decisions. So the greatest concern for us, all of us in this room, really is twofold. Asking God, what kind of person do you want me to be? Right? What kind of, what kind of father, what kind of son, what kind of guy do you want me to be? And then it's also asking a separate question, what tasks do you want me to do? What is it that you have, what is it that you have for me? This is, I wouldn't say a pet peeve, but this second question, asking God, what do you want me to do, is really important. I grew up in an environment where the people whose calling was most noteworthy in the church are all the men who were called to the ministry, right? And that's important. Make no mistake. It's really important to understand when God has his hand on your life to where you are going to serve him in a vocational sense. But no less important, and this gets back to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, no less important is the fact that he has a unique calling for each one of us. So kind of shame on us if we haven't placed the same priority on the individuals in our lives that are called to work making tents, being a landscape architect. Right? Or working at a title company. Or being a teacher. Or being a full-time mom. Right? Or, or, or being a sales guy. Or being a pastor. There, there, are, there are different ways that we all put food on the table. Or being a student. There are different ways that we put food on the table. Because our identity is not in what we do. Our identity is in Christ. Right? That relationship. So we can do, we can be a school teacher. My point is, I think that as Christians shift to the side, we kind of hurt ourselves not placing the right priority on that because we have young men and young women that are growing up in our churches that need to know God could call you as a politician. He needs you. Needs you. We need you. Right? And that's calling. As a doctor, a lawyer, a laborer, right? A glass glazer. These are things that God wants you to do, and there is... There is inherent value and glory in doing those things just as much as the things that are out front in front of people. We good with that? I mean, we should be, right? We really should be. So that question of who do you want me to be, God, and what do you want me to do? Those are profound questions for us. We need to ask those all the time, all of us in this room. So let's talk about a couple general areas that we, that we want to take into account when we're asking those questions. First one is, how do we figure this out for ourselves? First priority is we need to ask what the Bible says. We need to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about that? And this is going to sound basic. These are the things that we need to reinforce with each other all the time. Because back to Jenna's uh, comment a little earlier, the United States is distraction central. And, and, a lot of times what we need to do is just bring ourselves back to the basics. So it starts and ends with, what does God's Word say? So one of the things that we want to allow for when asking that question is, and as we interpret that for ourselves, is that there's never going to be a conflict between what God's Word says we're supposed to be or do and the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
If, if God's word says not to do something or not to be something and you feel inclined, you feel really, really strongly, you almost call it the Holy Spirit. As your, as your brother in the Lord, I'm telling you, you're not listening to the Holy Spirit. You're listening to another spirit. Now, I'm saying that because it sounds outlandish that we would say that, but we live in a culture where we have people who are with passion telling us the things that God's word absolutely speaks against are actually blessed by him. And they have all the passion in the world about it. So all I'm saying here is that when those things are in conflict, the Holy Spirit offered this. He's not going to contradict himself with his leading, right? Okay. So the second thing, so the objective truth and subjective leading, they're all going to, always going to be together. The, the, the second thing that I just want to remind us of is the Bible's not a Ouija board. It's not a, it's not a bag of fortune cookies. We don't, we don't go to this book primarily to my verse and say, I'm going to make a decision just based by one verse. God didn't send us this one verse at a time. He sent us this book we call the Bible as complete units of thought, as letters, as books. And they're to be understood as that, at least to the degree to where when we start looking at what does God want me to do with this truth, we really know what it means. We have some way of being able to determine the context. So um, I would just ask you, to write down a verse. We won't look at it right now, but this is really good homework. This is why it's important to know that it's biblical to understand God's word in context. Matthew chapter 10 or Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. This is for you to look at later. Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. Both Luke 4 and Matthew 4 give us two accounts of an amazing event, really an intriguing event, where Jesus at the inauguration of his ministry has just fasted for 40 days. And at his most vulnerable point, he is opposed by none other than Satan himself. Now, what you will see when you look at that passage is that you will see that Satan is expert at using the Bible, biblical truth, in ripping it out of context. So he will use the Bible against Jesus. He will use biblical truth and he will turn it on its head. So how does Jesus deal with that? You will find in the story that Jesus actually takes those same passages and he uses them appropriately within context against Satan, right? So I, I think that's instructive for us. So again, that's another reason why pulling things out of context can lead to our hurt, can lead to our damage. And there's an example of how Christ himself deals with it. Another is we need to be humble about the vastness of biblical truth. When we make a decision based on an incomplete understanding of Scripture, we might find out later that the topic's addressed in another area of Scripture we haven't studied yet. Okay? Sometimes we make decisions and they're the wrong ones because they're based on incomplete truth. There's help at hand, though. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. God places people in our life to kind of help be a sounding board for us so we don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time. And so this church and many other churches, uh, in fact, uh, the, the way and the rationale behind how we choose church leaders come from two primary passages in the New Testament, Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. These are character qualities and abilities that elders and deacons are supposed to have. Supposed to have. It's not a popularity contest. I love this verse because within the context here, Titus is being told, here are the character qualities you are to expect in elders. And in verse 9, here's one of the many things that an elder is supposed to be. An elder is to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict one of the things I love about our church is that we're large enough to be really diverse, but small enough to really know each other. So we have the ability to be able to have relationship with more mature believers and with the leaders within this church to help us think through some of these difficult decisions. Right. It's not all just up to us. 
And part of my responsibility and the other elders and the other deacons of this church is we're to aspire to understanding God's Word well enough to be able to tell you what it means to help all of us grow and also to know it well enough to be able to protect this church from people who would contradict that truth. That's what we're called to. Okay? So there's help there to figure out these decisions. It's not just all left to us. I, I, thank you for that smile. I just got a smile from, from Miguel. It's always worthwhile. All right. So helps there, helps on the way to make those decisions and to make them correctly with the leaders that are in our life. Here's another area. In areas where we have no direct statement, we can seek God in prayer and also gather wise counsel. We can throw a much broader net into the people that we know and love that we trust to run these decisions by them too. So let's go ahead and turn to Proverbs 15.22. Proverbs 15.22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. So this guy, this, this goes a little contrary to the way that we like to view ourselves. We think that when we get more mature, it means that we're going to be more self-sufficient. And actually, with maturity comes the self-awareness of knowing that you have to have other people involved in your raft, which is your life. So what the writer of Proverbs is saying here is it's a wise thing to do. Go ahead and throw a, throw a rope around people you trust and then bring them into the conversation because it's not just all up to us. We're responsible for the decision, but we have a lot of resources available to us to make the right decision. So here's one other thing that I've found, uh, one other idea about this whole idea of starting first with God's Word when it comes to important decisions. Sometimes it's debilitating. If we're confronted with a, with a decision that's a large one, one of the first things we might find ourselves thinking is, oh, my goodness, it's just so big. Why even try? God's word is so vast. There's so much I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to arrive. And from firsthand experience, I would, just, I would say that that is our sinful heart speaking. And, and oftentimes it is either Satan or a demon who's saying, just give up. Right. And we may never give up. But what will happen is we'll say, you know what, I'm just going to go with what Pastor Steve says. I just want to ask somebody else and tell them, you know, have them tell me what to do. And what what God is saying to us, what his word is, is saying to us is it's really our responsibility to ferret that out for ourselves. We have to put in some of that heavy lifting. So before we give up, before we say, you know, it's just too big for me, I can't, I'm just going to have to go with what Pastor Steve says. Before we go there, my encouragement for us is to remember that even though you don't think you know much, the people in this room have listened and accrued and absorbed hundreds of biblical stories. Right? So you may not be able to point to chapter and verse, but what you have been given is a steady dosage of the lives of those who were righteous and unrighteous. And, and just a huge repository of lessons learned through all these Old Testament and New Testament stories we know. When you really start to stop and think, you realize that Satan is just trying to get us. He's trying to do misdirection so that we discard the things that we know and we focus just on what we don't know. So I'm just saying that before you give up, realize that you have a huge repository of biblical understanding already at your fingertips because of the stories that you've learned and what you've already accrued over the years. And and the reality is we already know more than we're then we're able to be responsible to as it is. So we have what we need in order to start that internal conversation between us and the Lord. What do you want me to be? Who do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? So that's our first priority. It starts with, it's based on God's Word. Second priority, and this is a toughie. This is a toughie for me, and it's really tough for all of us. One of the most difficult balances in the spiritual life is to allow God to provide answers for us when and how he chooses. I call it the, the just enough, just in time rationale. Right? We have our own time frame. I've got an answer. God, you need to, you need to give me an answer. You, you need to understand. I need this answer right now. But the reality is he's got all the time in the world, and he will give us the answer in bite-sized chunks. That's just the way that he works. So I'll give you a couple of examples. 
So I've already gotten uh, okay from my son to, to highlight some of this some of this story. So those of you who've known us a long time, you already know plenty about our adoption story. So I don't want to wear you out with, with, with that story. I just want to tell you that as Christy and I have gotten distance from both of our adoptions, both with Olivia and with Jonathan, you would think that you get it figured out. As we get further away from those events, we're learning more and more about our own hearts. And it's really important stuff, man. It, it's our lives. So, uh, Many of you don't know this, that uh, at the very end of the process when we were in China ready to uh, adopt our son, we had made the tentative decision to vacate the adoption. We had already told our adoption agency it's really clear that he doesn't want to be with us and we, we, we don't know what to do. And that's not because he's a bad kid. He was scared, right? I'm saying that because you look at him and you think that it's simply inconceivable. That's where we were. And so Christy and I were literally at the end of ourselves. We talked to many of the people in this room all night, the day before we had the swearing-in ceremony, because we had already decided we're not going to take him here to the United States only to have to put him up for adoption. It was, it was a rugged situation. So we sought the counsel of the people in this church and after seeking the counsel of the people in this church, we didn't have an answer. We didn't know what we were going to do. We honestly didn't know what we were going to do. The morning of our swearing-in ceremony, Christy and I both come to the same realization at the same time, which is, oh, my goodness. We have been asking God this question about, do you want us to go to China? Do you want us to get an adoption? We really believed that he wanted us to go to China, and then we came to the same conclusion at the same time. Oh, my. We're the ones that made the assumption that he wanted us to get to China to adopt this, this boy. Maybe you have something else in, in mind. We didn't know. The point is, God had to put both of us in the point of asking that question because it was the next day or later that morning when God just helped us to be smarter than what we are because I asked the interpreter when it came down to, are you going to do this or are you not? God brought me to the point of asking the interpreter, I want you to put it just this way. I want you to ask him, because his name was Guangfeng back then, not Jonathan, Guangfeng. Don't use the name Jonathan. I want you to ask Guangfeng, do you want to go back to live at the orphanage with your friends? Do you want to go back to the country and live with Lala and Yaya, who were an elderly couple that he had lived for? For a while with? Or do you want to go to the United States with Matt and Christy? And I said, do not call us mom and dad, and don't call United States home. Do you want to go to the United States with Matt and Christy? And so... Um, she asked him the question. I still remember to this day because I couldn't look at him. Christy couldn't look at him. But I could see him out of my peripheral vision. He was missing so much teeth back then. You remember he was dropping them north and south, man. It was all the time. But I could, you know when you lose a tooth, you're kind of moving your tongue around, trying to get used to that new sensation of not, the tooth not being there. I can remember looking out of the corner of my eye just going, oh, yeah, he's taking forever to think through this one. And I honestly didn't know what he was going to say. He said, I, I want to go to the United States with Matt and Christie. The reason why I even give that illustration is that God provided us just enough, just in time. We wanted that answer right then. We felt like we were entitled to it. But God was really, he needed to put us in a different position where we were listening differently. I'm making a huge assumption that I'm just going to adopt the son. What, what else do I need to know? And it was God that helped us to be smarter than what we are to ask that question. That's just one example. God is not concerned with our time frame. We all know this. So you look at the children of Israel. He did the same thing. Do, do you know that if you were to chart a course from the land of Goshen to the, top, to the promised land, to, to the edge of Canaan, it would take less than a month? And that's being generous. Do you know that if you went from Mount Sinai to the edge of Canaan, it would take 11 days? So God was, he, he did not care about economy of effort. 
and getting from point A to point B. God's purpose all along was bringing this group of individuals to the point to where they were following him. And he, and he actually had to allow an entire generation to die off before they could get any further. That, that to me is profound. He's got all the time in the world. He can do what he wants, right? Just enough, just in time. But in their case, it took 40 years. The last, last illustration I'd give you is the life of the Apostle Paul. So it's, it's tempting for us to think that because God is all-powerful, he'll always intervene in the difficult circumstances in life if we ask him. Because he can, right? It's different asking the question whether or not he will. So I'm going to ask um, Brian if you can put up Philippians 4.13 and 19. Okay, so 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and my God, this is verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So if you just read those two verses, you think, man, I can get whatever I need whenever I need it. There's nothing that can stand in my way, right? But you really have to, you have to, you have to run roughshod over verse 12, which is this. Paul's saying, before he says any of those, he's saying, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Skips up to, to, to 19. The, the point is, even though God could, he chose not to. And that's part of why we have the book of Acts. Right? Michael, what did you take? Two years to lead the high schoolers through the book of Acts? Right? And that's fine. Time well spent. The, the, the reason why the book of Acts is there, such a prominent reason is, is for us to know that there would be times where these faithful men and women would be stoned and left for dead, would die an untimely death, would be ill-treated, right? would be wondering whether or not God could hear them, would be asking the same question again and again and again and searching God for answers. These are examples we need because if we didn't have these examples, we would think something was defective in us because we're having a hard time with the Christian life. These guys and women in the book of Acts were having a hard time with the Christian life. It was a difficult thing. Right? So you would get a completely different picture if this was the case. Jonathan shared with me uh, a story from a rather prominent church up in the Northeast. And, and this is really kind of heartbreaking when I think about it. Uh, this church has a young couple with a two-year, two-year-old child that died. And the leaders in that church, the pastor and some of the leadership, convinced that couple that they needed to go ahead and pray for the resurrection of that child. So that to me is wrong on so many different levels because God didn't say that. God can, but he didn't say that he would. So here's an illustration where Romans 12 needs to hop into action. This is where Paul tells us, you rejoice with people who rejoice, you weep with people who weep. You don't instruct them. You don't try to say you understand. There are people in this room who have gone through outliving their children. I don't know what it's like. So the last thing you want to do is sit down with somebody like that that's saying, I, I know how you feel. You, you have no idea. So the last thing they needed was somebody insinuating that they needed to just pray harder. And if they did, their child would recover. And that was indeed the case. The insinuation was that there was something wrong with the prayers of the, of the mom and dad who were grieving. That just ladled hurt upon hurt. Here's somebody who should have had the freedom to grieve, and now they're being accused of somehow not doing it right, or else their dear child would still be alive. That, that, that's enough to take the most mild-mannered among us and really make us vibrate with righteous indignation. And it, and it should. There's some things you should be angry about. So, a couple final thoughts. Is this helpful so far? That's the final question. I'm sorry. <laughs> few final thoughts. Let's resist the temptation to only turn to God when we're in need. 
right? When we do that, we set ourselves up for failure. I'm, I, I am in a fix here. God, please help me out. The habit of turning to God only when we have a big decision is at, and that's at hand, it really leads us to make a decision or make a request that's selfish, sometimes deceptive. Let's look at James 4.3. If you put that up there, Brian. James 4.3, and I'm going to read uh, verses 3 and then 7 and then 8. All right. But I need to find James first. There we go. James chapter 4, verse 3. I could turn around and read it, but now I'm committed. He tells these believers, You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's what happens when we wait too long in the process. He says in verse 7, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the point for us is to stay in that conversation and not just reach out to him when we need it. You know what we do as people? Matt Downey among us, right? So all of us do this. Um, we, when good things happen, what do we do? Uh, you know, we take credit. We, that, that is the condition of our heart. That's our, that's our default. That's our go-to. We take credit. It's the Spirit of God that gives praise to God in, in us. So our first inclination is when we do something right, we take credit. When we do something wrong, who do we blame? We blame God. Why did you do this to us? We're, we're not in that conversation and asking him what he thinks at all. So the second thing is, so let's resist that temptation to only call on him and talk to him when we need it, when we feel like we need it. Secondly, let's just remember that help's available as often and as, and as, and as often and as, that it's needed or wanted. So we already talked before about 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Godly leadership, godly friends, right? Good relationships. Throw a broader net around those relationships and making decisions. I'm going, to read, I'm going to have you write this one down. Prayer and wise counsel. Proverbs 11.14. Proverbs 11.14. Great place to look up. Right? And it talks about, again, why it's a wise thing for us to be able to solicit the input from our friends, people that we trust. And the other one, and this is another great one to look up, Hebrews 5.14. This is awesome to me. Prior experience can be our guide. What the writer of Hebrews tells us in, in, in 5.14 is that as you're mature and you're ready for the solid food of God's word, you also have the ability based on prior experience to be able to tell good from evil. So the great thing about the Christian life is that we can actually grow and we can learn our own lessons, right? Last thing here. Go next to the last thing. Sometimes we'll be mistaken and have to live out the consequences of our decisions. God can always work our present situation for our good. Last verse we'll look at, Romans 8.28. Again, we've committed this to memory, but this is another one of those profound passages, Romans 8.28. So even when we make mistakes, even when we think that we are the the you look at the term failure in the dictionary and it shows our profile. Even when you think that the people that, that we have, that have loved us the most, we've been an absolute abject failure. This is what God's word says to us. 828. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purposes. So this is a Paramus. This is not a axiomatic truth. This is not a truism. This is true every time. That God is such a powerful God, and I speak to all of us, we're all in the same, same boat here, as all of us have made huge, huge, terrible, shameful decisions in our lives. As we make the choice to love him, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So as we make the choice to love him and are called according to his purposes, he is so powerful that he can take those very things that have destroyed us and use those things to build character into us. I just think that's amazing. 
I just think to say that's amazing doesn't do it justice. I mean, can you imagine he is so powerful that the things that were there to destroy us, and even by our own hand, God can say, I love you so much, I have such a marvelous plan for you, I can take those very things, and those would be the things that will actually upgird your character the most. So the, the verse is not saying everything just works out. The, the verse is saying, as you love God and you're committed to his purposes, he will work things out. And the things that could have destroyed you will be things that he'll build for your good. And again, that's a promise every time. Every time it's tried, it's true. That's a promise. So we're done. We're just about done. right? I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. But I also want to make sure that I don't step over something else that's really important. The, the, The very God who led us to salvation. So all of us who have called upon the name of Jesus Christ as our Savior, just remember the same God that successfully led you to that point of trusting Him as your Savior is the same God that's going to lead us through the Christian life. He's not left us. Just as He was faithful in that, He will be faithful in us conducting the Christian life. Those two things are true. The the other thing that I would say is that You know, when I've talked about those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, if you've entered in here and you've thought, I just need to kind of gussy myself up for the Lord. I just need to make sure things are all in order before I get serious with the Lord. The, The verse we read at the very beginning of our time about God's grace being a gift that we take, that we couldn't earn or deserve it, That's true. And so if you have never made that decision to trust Christ as your Savior, to to find forgiveness of sins in a right relationship with God, man, I'd be thrilled to talk to you. Or any one of the other people here, any of the teachers, any of your family members, anybody who's trusted, would love to have that conversation with you before you head out those two doors and go to lunch. Right? All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray together. Father, I, I thank you for the fact that every verse we read, as, as wide apart as it was within Scripture, every verse we read, every passage we referred to, every note that we took about passages that we needed to follow up on and read, that is your truth. And, Father, my, my hope And my desire is that my words haven't gotten in the way of your truth being celebrated and the the people of this wonderful church family investing their own time over this next week to be able to look at your word for themselves, to explore better both the challenge and the blessing that it is to rely on you and to find answers to our lives and our direction, who you want us to be and what do you want us to do, that we would be able to explore that and find the answers that only come from you. Father, we just commend to you the rest of our time together and the rest of this day. Thank you again for giving this this family this, this time together uh, up till now. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.